0: There's something really wonderful, I think, about uh, singing praises to the Trinity. Uh, it, I, I just love that. It just stirs my soul so much to, to praise the Godhead combined. Um, well, my name is Logan. I don't know all of you, but I know some of you, and uh, it's great to be with you tonight. And uh, this Midweek Fellowship series, we've been going through the epistle uh, of James, and um, as a way of overview, the first two chapters basically uh, are, are this, is that a true profession of faith inevitably entails um, that a person will have good good works. In other words, you can't have a profession of faith. You can't claim to be a Christian and yet not be conformed into the image of Christ. There's not a category for that in the scriptures. Uh, and so basically that is what James has been hammering home to us, is that we can't simply claim to to know God, to believe in God, and yet not seek to be like God. But before we talk about Martin Luther tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit about myself and how I came to read uh, Martin Luther. I became a Christian about seven years ago, so in early 2010. Uh, Before that, I was a nominal Christian. I remember going to a camp uh, when I was younger. I was perhaps six or seven years old. And at that camp, I made a profession of faith. Uh, but as I grew up, I lived a, a more and more worldly lifestyle. And um, kind of like the lowest part of, of that, uh, it was in the fall of 2009. I was a student at Emory University. And I went to this talk, and the man um, giving this talk was, was trying to persuade us that evil uh, can, uh, does not disprove the existence of God. And I, I left that talk thinking that there's no way that God can exist. And I remember calling one of my friends afterwards, uh, a, a guy who I knew to uh, be an agnostic. And we, and we talked and, and I said, uh, you know, I just don't think I believe in God anymore. And he quoted to me uh, something from Carl Sagan. Perhaps uh, you all are familiar with him from his work on uh, the, the cosmos. And um, he said, you know, great claims require great evidence. And, you know, I kind of, and that kind of bolstered me in my and my belief that there was no God. But God and his mercy shortly after that began to work powerfully in my life. And just several months later, I was converted and saved. But after my conversion, I really began to struggle with introspection. Uh, some people call this um, you know, morbidity or, uh, or scrupulosity. And basically the idea is this, is that I, I was always looking inward for evidence that I was a Christian. And I, I wanted to, to answer this question, how can I know that I'm actually saved? How can I know that God has shown me mercy in Christ? Because before I had made a profession of faith, but it wasn't genuine. Um, and so how could I know I was actually saved? And around this time, I began to read the Puritans. And I love the Puritans. I, they are so uh, biblically grounded uh, in their writings. And I remember reading this and just being shocked that there were there, there were these people who were were so uh, intellectual, but they also loved God with all their mind and all their heart. But certain of the Puritans, this is not all the Puritans, but certain of the Puritans really emphasized um, self-inspection or, you know, just to evaluate yourself in light of what the Scripture says. And through that, I, you know, was always looking to see whether or not I was sincere, and, you know, there was titles such as Matthew Meads that almost Christian discovered. And he said that there was like 20 things you can do and still not be saved. He said that you can hate sin and still not be saved. That you can love Christ and still not be saved. And these things frightened me because he was saying that you can do all these things and still not be saved. And so I would, would, would get by myself so much and examine myself and say, am I really saved? And this, this caused me a great deal of anxiety and fear. But in the midst of reading the Puritans, I happened upon the spiritual autobiography of John Bunyan. And John Bunyan uh, wrote uh, uh, one of the most uh, uh, most popular books ever written, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life. But he, he wrote it in a spiritual autobiography as well called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in this, he recounts his own struggle to, to, to grasp whether or not God has been gracious to him. And this struggle lasted for many years. And at one point, his depression was so deep because he thought that he had committed the unpardonable sin, and that God would never be merciful to him. But in the midst of reading this, I came across a quote, and here's what he said. He said, But of particulars here, I intend nothing. Only this, methinks, I must let fall before all men. I do prefer this book of Martin Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible before all the books that I I ever had seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. And that... And I was like, wow. And so I went and got Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And um, in the midst of reading that, the Lord ministered to me in a marvelous way. And and John Bunyan's testimony was confirmed in my own life. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, spoke so clearly, forcefully, and, and, and boldly about God's acceptance of sinners through Jesus Christ alone. And he said things to the extent that, you know, we must not... Think that God, you know, requires anything of us because to do that is to, uh, to to introduce self righteousness into the gospel, and Luther himself was able to write so clearly because of his own struggles with these with these problems, and so I say all that by way of introduction uh, to say that you know what we're doing here tonight is I hope you know beneficial for you because Martin Luther has been profoundly beneficial in my own life, and I'm so thankful. That God raised up this man who was able to minister to me in his writings. It's As it says in in Hebrews chapter 11, though dead, he still speaks through his writings. Uh, But before we talk about Martin Luther's biography, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Martin Luther's views on James. And that's one of the reasons Brad wanted me to speak tonight on Martin Luther. Uh, It's well known that Martin Luther had an aversion to uh, the epistle to James and the reason for that was twofold. Number one, he thought that James was not written by an apostle. And then the second one was this, is that James' teaching was not really apostolic. In other words, he didn't think that James' teaching adequately emphasized the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And he's right. Those things don't really appear in the book. And, um, and the reason for that is because of the genre of Scripture it is, and that's not really the purview of our discussion tonight, but I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have uh, afterwards if, if that's the case. Um, and so, let me read you um, two quotes from Martin Luther about, about James. The first is this, he says, First, flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture, it, the epistle of James, ascribes righteousness to works. Second, its purpose is to teach Christians, and in all of this long teaching, it is not once mission... The Passion, the Resurrection, or the Spirit of Christ? He goes on. In a word, St. John's Gospel in his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you never were to see or hear any other book or doctrine. St. James' epistle is really an epistle of straw compared to the others for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. So Luther had these, these pretty grave complaints about the epistle of James. However, despite his protestations about the book, he still preached from James on several occasions. And the reason for that is because he followed the common lectionary, which essentially is this, is just like a, the readings that are, are delineated for each day of the year. And so, for example, Catholics, Anglicans, Episcopals, Methodists, and, and Lutherans all have this uh, uh, lectionary, uh, that they they follow, and so it, you say perhaps you're a member of a church in Columbus, but you go to Pittsburgh, you would be able to follow along with the, the, the readings in that in that way um, but you know luther 's views on james um, he you know it's we must be aware of this this attitude towards scripture, and that Luther went wrong because he held up certain portions of scripture higher than another, and this this idea is called the canon within a canon, so in other words. They hold up certain portions of Scripture to a higher standard, and they use that as a lens to which they judge all other Scripture. Now, this idea, you know, you're like, okay, that's, that's kind of weird. That's kind of abstract. But it's actually much more common than you think. Uh, how many of you all have ever heard of a red-letter Christian, somebody who only believes the red letters of you know, the Bible? Okay, so most of you have. And that's, it's really the similar idea. So people say, well, you know, I believe the red letters of Jesus, but, you know, I don't necessarily believe the, the black letters of Paul, or Moses. Well, interestingly enough, in the the original the original uh, uh, manuscripts didn't have red letters for Jesus' words. You know, everything was everything was just sort of in a in a black font. But 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 even more importantly, but even more importantly, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16, the apostle Paul makes a remarkable claim about the scriptures. He says this. He goes, "All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So, he, so Paul doesn't differentiate between Jesus's words or his own words. He doesn't differentiate between Jesus's words or Moses's words. All of these words ultimately originate in God. And Peter makes a similar claim in Second Peter chapter 1. So we must beware of this attitude. We we, we must embrace all of Scripture because all of Scripture together reveals to us God's will. And so now we can begin with Martin Luther's biography. Um, It's important, I think, for us as Christians to read biography. I love biography. And in the resource room, we have several biographies. And I think that you would be well served to, to check some of those out. We have uh, one series in there in particular called A Long Line of Godly Men. Most of the volumes were written by Steve Lawson, a pastor in in Mobile, Alabama, and he's a a wonderful expositor of God's word. Uh, But in in that series, there is a, a biography of Martin Luther, there is one on Spurgeon, on John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, and so reading these biographies, I think you would be encouraged to see how these men lived out the Christian life. And although they're not perfect, they serve as a good guide to, to help us on our way. Um, so Martin Luther, he was born in 1483 in Germany. And Martin Luther wasn't born in a cosmopolitan city. He was, he was born in the backwoods. He was uh, born in a, in, a, in a rural area. And Europe at this point uh, was very spiritually dark. And the reason for that uh, basically was that most people were unable to read. And that the scriptures in that time were in, in Latin. So this was the Latin Vulgate that Jerome translated in the late 300s and early 400s. But the problem is that most people at this time didn't speak Latin uh, or read Latin. Only the, the educated did. So just the common person in the pew uh, really was, was unable to, to hear God's word and read it for themselves. And so, uh, the, also at this time, the mass or the uh, the Catholic worship service was in Latin. It wasn't in the vernacular of the people, and the Catholic Church was really uh, against the idea of translating the Scripture uh, into the language of the people. And the, and the reason why is because they didn't think that anybody could could understand the, the Scripture apart from the the help and the interpretation of the Church itself. And they were they were so uh, adamant on this point that that they, they persecuted and killed those who, who did translate the Scripture into other languages. And so perhaps you'll recall John Wycliffe in the 1200s who translated uh, the, the Bible into um, to, to English. And he was persecuted, and his followers, the Lollards, were persecuted for doing this. And, and something similar happened in France as well um, at this time. And so in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, uh, uh, God makes this prophecy. And although it's not specifically referring to... Uh, Germany in the 15th uh, century, I think it it, it really applies and summarizes what's going on in Europe at this time. And God said that he's going to bring a famine on the land. And not a famine of like not having enough food or enough water, but a famine of hearing the word of God. And that was what's going, what what was happening at this time that Luther was born. And so as I said, Luther was born in 1483. And so this was uh, about nine years before something really uh, important happened in the world that most of you probably remember from your elementary school history classes, uh, that, that Christopher Columbus, you know, sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So, uh, so that, that was even before Christopher Columbus came that Martin Luther was born. So Martin Luther was born to uh, very strict Catholic parents. He had a father named Hans and a, mo- a mother, Margareta. And they were very strict uh, disciplinarians. Uh, but his father was an upcoming, well-to-do businessman, and he was a miner. And uh, as a miner, uh, he had kind of worked his way up, and he uh, had, uh, own, had ownership of several mines. But he wasn't a fabulously wealthy. His mother still worked at home and had to go get firewood, which is sort of a strange domestic duty, you know, you know that we, we don't think, wow, like, my wife has to go get firewood for me. Uh, we, you know, we, we take for granted uh, these, you know, electricity. Uh, but th- that was kind of the, the world that he grew up in. But his mother also was very superstitious. And Luther really didn't abandon these superstitions even when he was later in life. And so, for example, his mother believed that there were fairies and these other spirits who lived out in the woods. And so they were, you know, th- these were enchanted woods, which looking like us, looking back on that, it's like, wow, that's kind of bizarre. But that's, this was just kind of the world that Luther grew up in. And so they were very quick to um, attribute things to, to, to spiritual uh, to spiritual causes. So for example, say that you got really sick, and it's, oh, well, obviously this must be the result of Satan trying to, to kill you or make you sick. That's why. And so um, they, ha- they, they, they viewed the world through that, that lens. And not that it's a, a bad thing. Obviously, Satan and spirits are, are real and active in the world. But uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, he presented this um, and this dichotomy that some people are, are very prone to attribute everything to, to, to Satan and demonic activity, and some people are, are very skeptical that they don't exist. And so Luther was on this part of the continuum that he, he attributed many things to, to that, and his mother did as well. And growing up, Luther was a very bright child. He, he displayed uh, uh, marks of intellectual gifting at a very young age. Uh, so he went off to university, and he, re- he received his, his, his bachelor's and his master's, and he was studying for law. Um, But in 1505, um, the the plague had broke out in Erfurt where Luther Luther was going to university. And he was on his way back home uh, to, to his parents in Eisleben. And so on July 2nd, 1505, something very remarkable happened. Luther was walking home in this field, and all of a sudden, a thunderstorm broke out. And in the midst of this thunderstorm, a lightning bolt struck right near to Luther and Luther was terrified. He, he thought for certain that he was going to die, and he knew that he was unprepared to meet God. And Luther, not knowing what to do, cried out to not Christ, but Saint Anne, interestingly, who is this, the patron saint of minors, who perhaps he, he heard of when he was growing up because of his father's work as a minor. And he cried out, and he said, Saint Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. And so two weeks later, Luther had completely abandoned his, his desire to become a lawyer. Uh, and, and, and instead, he showed up at the Augustinian cloister to present himself as a monk. And so this was a, a very dramatic turn because Luther's father was hoping that, that his son Martin would, would be a lawyer because he would be able to provide uh, security, financial security, as, as the age. But Luther instead went to the monastery. And the Augustinian uh, um, order was perhaps the strictest or one of the strictest orders of of monasticism. And so Luther lived as a monk, and the the lives of monks were were ordered around the daily schedule. And so the daily schedule is essentially the times of prayers that the monks had. And so they had seven times of prayer throughout the day. And so the monks' lives were, were, were prayer and work, ora et labora, as they, as they would say. And um, Luther was, was devoted to this. And their, their days began very early. They he, began at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning so he could get up and pray. And So he was living a very strict and regimented and disciplined life. And the, the whole point of monasticism as it existed in the Middle Ages, was to help people in their attempt to earn their salvation, to placate an angry God. And so they said, like, if you are very serious about saving your soul, you should go into the monastery because you can devote yourself to prayer and to good works. And Luther uh, ran headlong into this, hoping to find a merciful God. And Luther in the monastery, um, really, he's even here, Struggle to find a peace with God, and he would he would confess his sins to his to his um, superior um, his name was stopitz and he would he would confess his sin for his sins for hours at a time and even though he confessed for so long, he still was unable to find peace with God because in order to find forgiveness, you had to first to remember all of your sins and so Luther would confess sometimes for hours on end and then he would leave the confessional and then a sin would come to his mind that he, he forgot to confess. And so this tortured him. It, it caused him so much grief and anguish that he was unable to, to remember all these sins. And so his superior told him, if you're going to come in here to confess your sins, you need to confess a real sin. Murder your father, murder your mother, but confess a real sin. You know, don't. Come in here and tell me that, you know, like, you know, that you, you know, had like a bad thought or something like this that caused him so much anguish. But Luther, here's what he said, like reflecting on his life in the monastery. He goes, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules of my order more strictly than I can express. If ever monk could attain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Of this, all the friars who have known me can testify. If it had continued much longer, I should have carried my mortifications even to death by means of my watching, prayers, reading, and other labors. So despite all of this um, effort to, 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 to do these good works, he still was unable to find peace. In um, Luther's problems, um, they, they persisted. And I want to uh, bring you to a scene that happened um, like 22 months, basically, after the time that Luther first presented himself in the monastery. And this happened on May 2nd, 1507. And this was the time of Martin Luther's first mass. And so this was a a really big occasion, and it had to be rescheduled a couple times in order that his father could come. And his father was really looking forward to this, and he brought um, a group of people with him uh, to celebrate this joyous occasion. He also was bringing a large gift to, to donate to the monastery. And um, as Luther um, was going through uh, the Mass, everything was going well until he came to the part uh, where the elements, the bread and the wine, as Catholics believe, were, were, were changed from just simply being bread and wine to being the very body and the very blood of Christ. And this caused Luther to, to, to tremble before God. And he, he wondered, like, how could he proceed uh, because he is a sinner and God is holy And here's what he says. He goes, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him, and at his nod the earth trembles, and shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. So Luther obviously um, was embarrassed by this, and his father was embarrassed by this. He had come all this way to see his son, who who had a, a abandoned his, his legal career to go to the monastery and to stumble over some words during the Mass. And... And, and so Luther, after, after the service, they had lunch together, and he was looking for reaffirmation or from his father. And he goes, Father, you know, I can do so much more good for you here in the monastery. I can pray for you, and I can do more for you here than I could if, if I was a lawyer and simply giving you money. And, and, and his father responded back very curtly, you know, you, you learned a doctor. Don't you know that God says to honor your mother and father? And so Luther was, was kind of pricked with this doubt, like, am I doing the right thing? And his father went on and said this, he said, God grant, it was not an apparition of the devil that brought you to the monastery. In other words, you know, when Luther was so terrified and called out the Saint Anne and said, I'll become a monk, Luther's dad said, you know, well, I hope it wasn't the devil who brought you here instead. So later on, uh, Luther uh, went to Rome. Uh, He was was selected uh, as part of a, a group of people from his monastery who would go to this meeting of Augustinian monks. In, in Rome, And Luther was very excited about this because a trip to Rome held open the possibility of great spiritual benefit. And the reason for this was that there were many relics in Rome. And a relic is simply a, something that um, has a spiritual significance. Um, so, for example, um, in Rome, they, they, were, they claimed to have um, a thorn from the crown of Jesus or a piece of bread from the Last Supper. Or a piece of wood from the cross of Christ, and some of these things we look like this is preposterous, and it is preposterous. But they, um, but people would come to these things hoping to to derive some spiritual benefit, and in particular, the greatest spiritual benefit that they they hoped to get by going on these pilgrimages was that they could reduce their sentence in purgatory or reduce the sentence of a loved one who was in purgatory, and um, the the greatest relic or one of the most um, important that they had in Rome at this time were these stairs that Pilate was supposed to have stood on when he condemned Jesus. And so it was said that if you uh, crawled up the steps on your knees and at every step said a Hail Mary, when you reached the top, uh, you could release a, uh, one of your family members from purgatory. So at this point, Luther didn't have, uh, uh, his, his parents were still alive, so he didn't do that. So he, he decided to release his grandfather from purgatory. And, um, but when he, when he reached the top, he, he wasn't sure if that, if that really was the case. And he said, who knows if this is so? And so at this point, Luther really began to, to doubt the validity of this, of this system. And so Luther's uh, questions, uh, remained as, as he returned back to Rome or back, back back to Germany, rather, forgive me. And when he returned back to Germany. the head of his 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 monastery said that Luther should should go and be a, a professor of divinity, and Luther he really didn't like this idea uh, because you know first of all he had so many questions about it for himself, um, and and he had so many reasons why he shouldn't do this. But um, and he's like you know I'll you know, this will like work cause me to work myself to death. And uh, his his superior said, well that's good because God has. Many things for clever people to do in heaven. And, um, and so eventually he went and, and, and completed these degrees uh, in, in divinity and, and began uh, working as a professor at the University of Wittenberg. And um, and so he early on he preached through the Psalms and then he preached uh, on uh, Galatians and Romans. And this was like really from like 1513 to like 1519 that like he was preaching on these books. Uh, but during this time there was... Um, uh, a controversy arose, and it was uh, in the, the controversy over indulgences. And indulgence was simply something that uh, you can buy from the church uh, in order to, to, to get forgiveness of sins. And the whole idea of indulgences really arose uh, during um, the Crusades. So you had these, these wealthy people who didn't want their children to go fight, and so they bought an indulgence so uh, a, a peasant could go fight for them. And uh, so it just kind of remained after that. And uh, But the reason they, they were raising money was so that they could uh, complete the construction of St. Uh, Peter's Basilica. And, uh, and so they sent a certain uh, Dominican friar named Johann Tetzel to, to Germany to raise uh, money by selling indulgences. And he was a, a very uh, skilled uh, salesman. And he, he said that these indulgences could forgive any sin. And he went so far as to say... That these indulgences could even forgive the sin of raping Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, okay, so this is kind of like what what the kind of claims that this man is is making here and um, and perhaps and uh, you've heard this this jingle or this this little rhyme or limerick that he made, uh, he says like you know when a coin in a coffer springs, a soul from purgatory springs, in other words, if you buy this, like you can uh, release uh, somebody from your family from purgatory and so this uh, became a, a really big problem, and so even though he wasn't allowed to come to the same city as Martin Luther, he uh, was able to come to a neighboring uh, community, and so this became a really important or grave pastoral problem for Luther, um, and as we'll talk about later, Luther viewed himself primarily as a pastor, uh, and so Luther, you know, decided to respond to this by, by posting 95 theses on the castle church at, at, at Wittenberg, and um, and they dealt with all types of things. I'll read a couple of them to you. So this is thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. Uh, and this is thesis number six. The Pope himself cannot remit guilt, but only declare and confirm that it has been remitted by God, or at most he can remit it in cases reserved to his discretion. Except for these cases, the guilt remains untouched. And Luther, like, you know, said, like, you know, if the Pope really can free people from purgatory by selling indulgences, why doesn't he just release everyone? You know, why doesn't he just release everyone from purgatory if he's able to do this? And, um, and so uh, this caused quite a controversy. You know, and Luther at this point, uh, he didn't want to break away from the Catholic Church. He thought, you know, like the Pope didn't know what was going on. And he, he was like, you know, if, if Pope Leo X knew what was happening right here, he would be outraged, but Luther didn't know that Pope Leo was the one who commissioned this, this, this cell of indulgences. And so, uh, at this point, I think we can talk about Luther's conversion. And Luther dates his conversion to 1519, okay? But historians really don't know if that date is accurate, uh, they they don't know because he wrote this later in life. And so they don't know if like 1519 is, is the case or if it was actually a little bit earlier, maybe like 1515. Because like this, the 95 thesis, um, Theses in, in this controversy began in 1517. So, um, but Luther um, dated his conversion to 1519. But we can talk about his conversion now. And uh, Luther, um, you know, as I said, still was unable to find peace with God. And he was lecturing on these biblical books. And here's sort of the, the problem he had. And let me read it right here. There's a quote. He said, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I cannot believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, blasphemously Certainly, murmuring, murmuring, uh, murmuring greatly, I was angry with God, and so Luther, even though he was so uh, dedicated to these religious devotions, he still didn't have peace, and he was upset with God. But um, he was studying uh, the uh, the letter to the Romans, and um, in, in Romans one seventeen, uh, Luther was really trying to understand what Paul meant by the righteousness of God. Uh, you know, so Romans 117 is this, you know, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith uh, by faith, for, in, uh, for as it says, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Luther was trying to understand what, what it means, the righteousness of God. And throughout the Middle Ages, uh, the idea was that the righteousness of God means that attribute of God by which he punishes sinners. And that was a terrifying thought to Luther because he knew himself to be a sinner, but as he meditated on this verse, day and night, he said, he, he came, to, came to realize that, he, uh, that Paul meant that the righteousness of God was the righteousness that he revealed in the gospel, the righteousness that God imputes to those who believe in his Son for salvation. And, and when he did this, he, he had these thoughts and he, he was converted. Here's, here's what he said. He goes, here... I felt I was altogether born again and had inner paradise through itself, through open gates. And here's something remarkable. I love this part. He goes, Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. Now here's what's remarkable about this quote. Luther didn't begin reading the Bible until he was 20 years old. And here he's able to say that he ran through the entire scriptures from his memory to think about what they said. And, um, and so, but, you know, it's just amazing that, um, that, that it, first of all, he was so devoted to the Bible, but then, like, once that clicked, all the Scripture made sense to him. And it's kind of like the idea of, like, have you ever, like, tried to read the Old Testament, like, without, like, like seeing Christ in it? A lot of it doesn't really make sense. And so, like, all of Scripture points to Christ, and if we try to understand, you know, the Old Testament without Christ, it, it really is confusing and doesn't make a lot of sense, Uh, And so Luther had sort of like a similar um, uh, experience when he um, uh, was was able to understand Romans one seventeen. So later on, uh, Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms to answer for uh, this controversy that had erupted in Wittenberg from him posting the 95 Theses. And uh, while he was there, uh, basically it it became uh, that he had to answer for all these writings that he had produced over this time. And Luther uh, was, was nervous on the first day, and so he asked for more time. And on the second day, he came back, and he was prepared to answer. And this is where, um, you know, Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. This is uh, where, this, where, where this comes from. And he uh, eventually said that, hey, I, I, I uh, confess these writings are mine, and I stand by them. And so after that point, Luther was sort of an outlaw. And so right after the Diet of Worms, Luther was heading back to Wittenberg, and he was kidnapped and he was kidnapped uh, in, a, in a, an elaborate plot uh, orchestrated by Frederick the Wise, who was the prince of, of Martin Luther's province. And so during this time, uh, Luther lived in Wartburg, uh, Wartburg Castle. And um, while he was there, he assumed the identity of, of Knight George. And Luther, he wasn't a very good knight. He, you know, he was sort of an academic. And so he was clumsy. You know, he, he, he didn't look um, like he uh, knew how to use a sword very well. And once they took him on a hunting expedition, and he was like, oh, this is so foolish. Why are we hunting a rabbit? You know, a rabbit hasn't done anything wrong. And so, <laughs> um, and, and while he was there, he really began to struggle with, like, whether or not he was doing the right thing. He began to be assailed by these doubts of, like, am I, uh, am I wrong to go against the Catholic Church and so many people? But while he was there in the midst of these doubts, he was also very productive. He wrote several books, and while he was there, he also translated um, uh, the New Testament into German. Uh, and he also began working on the Old Testament. Um, and so what he did this from the original languages. So, you know, it's, it, you know, it was very impressive that he was able to accomplish so much despite his depression during this time. Um, and, so, and so Luther went on. He went back to, to Wittenberg uh, about a year later and, uh, and helped put down uh, this rebellion that had arisen among the peasants. And um, and he was kind of harsh during this time. But uh, so it, it eventually things were settled, and and Luther kind of settled back into a groove. And he really, from from this point on, uh, Luther had a, a, not an ordinary life, but things weren't as dramatic. You know, there are several other notable events. But I want to, instead of talking about like these, a couple more notable events, to focus more on like, uh, Luther the person, how Luther viewed himself, how Luther interacted with his family. And so uh, Luther, as I said, primarily saw himself as a preacher. And here's a, a wonderful quote by this historian. He said this, Martin Luther is famous as reformer, theologian, professor, translator, prodigious author, and polemicist. He is well known as hymn writer, musician, friend of students, mentor of pastors, and pastor to countless clergy and laity. Yet he saw himself, first of all, as a preacher, and that's remarkable that, that he viewed this office uh, that highly, and Luther preached very frequently. So, between 1510 and 1546, he preached 3,000 sermons, and so usually he would preach several times a day, and um, on Sundays, their services began very early. Um, I don't know how it would go over if we adopted this here at Crosspoint, but they, their first service began at five o'clock in the morning, and, and they would interpret the, the Pauline epistles at this time. And then, a little later at 9 a.m they would they would uh, come to, together to study a passage from the gospels, and then we're not quite done. We, we'd come back, We'd come back later that evening uh, to, to, to finish um, the morning discourse on the gospels or to explain part of the catechism. So uh, it was he was preaching very frequently during this time, but Luther, he didn't preach for academics. he didn't preach for. Uh, the intellectuals. Instead, he preached to the common man. He preached to, um, to the to the simple person in the audience, and that that's wonderful that he he viewed him his role that way. And so, uh, in 1525, Luther was married to Katerina von Bora, who was an escaped monk or a nun, rather. So, uh, here you have an outlaw, uh, a monk, and nun who are married to each other. <laughs> And so they were married on uh, June 13, 1525. And they had six kids, and they also ad- adopted six children. And um, two of Luther's kids died before they were uh, adults. And one of his daughters, uh, Magdalena, wh- whom he loved dearly, uh, died in the plague. And, um, but Luther declared, like when they were hammering her coffin, he said, hammer away, on doomsday she'll rise again. And um, so he was, he was, he was grief-struck, his wife was grief-struck, but he still had such confidence in, in God in the midst of this difficulty. And, and Luther and his wife had a, a marvelous marriage. They had a very uh, a good, strong marriage, and, and, and Luther loved his wife. She did many, many things around the house. She, um, he called her Lord Katie because she, she did so many things. But one thing that Luther loved about his wife was her beer. She was really good at brewing beer, and... Uh, yeah, so if you're single, you know, that's an important <laughs> characteristic to look for in your wife. And so uh, here, here's, here's what Luther said. He goes, I keep thinking what good wine and beer I have at home, as well as a beautiful wife. You would do well to send me over a whole cellar of wine in a bottle of thy beer. And so he really, he really enjoyed it. So, um, but even though after Luther became a believer, he still struggled with depression and anxiety and he 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 said that it wasn't and let, if he didn't have these these struggles these intellectual or not intellectual but emotional struggles that he couldn't uh, be a theologian he said really that struggles make a theologian that you can't understand the scriptures without these struggles and in the midst of these struggles you know luther would would feel very sad and, and distant from God. And he, he said at one point, he goes, That at such a time God seems so terribly angry, and with him the whole creation. At such a time there is no flight, no comfort within or without, but all things accuse. In this moment it is strange to say, the soul cannot believe that it can ever be redeemed. And Luther struggled with this throughout his whole life, even after he was saved. And but he thought that these these struggles, these, these temptations Um, drew him closer to God and allowed him to understand the scripture in a way that otherwise he could not. So Martin Luther had several very important ideas. Among them were uh, the recovery of justification by faith alone. Also the authority of the Bible. And he also showed us that human authority is not absolute, but that the word of God is absolute. And Luther had many admirable qualities. For example, he was a man of prayer. And Luther said, for example, he goes, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. He was also devoted to the Word of God, and he said that he read through the Bible twice a year. He was courageous in the face of difficulty, and he persevered in faith despite feeling abandoned by God. However, Luther was also a sinner, and that's very clear. Um, for example, he was very harsh toward the Jews in his life. He was also harsh towards the peasants during the peasant uprising when he returned from the Wartburg Castle. He also had um, a, a, a part in this, this controversy with this man called Philip Landgrave, who was um, like a noble. And he was married at, when he was 19 to another lady. Uh, it was an arranged marriage. But he didn't love his wife. And so he Decided to get sexual satisfaction from another lady who wasn't his wife. Um, and so obviously he knew this was wrong. And so Luther and Philip Melecton, they were like, Well, in the Old Testament, you know, the patriarchs had more more than one wife. And so Luther said, like, well, you know, it'd be okay if you, you did this which obviously is kind of kind of strange advice, but Luther said it was okay. Uh, but afterwards, I will say that Luther re- really regretted that, that decision. He said, if anybody else does this, he, will, he should bathe in the, the, the fires of hell. And so he really regretted this decision, but even though he gave his assent to it at one point. Uh, so, um, you know, in conclusion, I guess before we, I can take some questions in the last several minutes, you know, Luther was a very remarkable man in many ways, but he was also a very flawed man. He's somebody that I think that, you know, we can look to uh, as an example of somebody who, who desires to serve God, but is, is a sinner. And Luther had this expression that, you know, that Christians are simultaneously um, sinners and righteous at the same time. You know, even though we have this imputed righteousness of Christ that, that we have, and even though we've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are being conformed more to the image of his son Jesus, we still have this old man within us. And so Luther understood this uh this tension very well, and so with that i' i'm i'm, I'm uh, willing to answer any questions if you uh you have have them i I think there's a, a girl over here who has her hand up. Okay, so okay, Martin Luther was really cool, but what about his wife? Like, as far as prayer and Bible reading, because she was pretty busy. Whereas his like occupation was that. Yeah. So, so like, she was. Uh, so she was responsible really for a lot of like domestic duties, but she was also very busy like too. So Luther would always have people over to his to his house, and like sometimes they would have like twenty people over to for dinner, and so she was responsible for all of these things. And Katerina von Bora, she, she herself was a very witty woman. And so they would, um, you know, go back and forth too. And there's like lots of accounts of that and um, uh, the, the volumes of Table Talk, which is just like notes that people made while they were over to dinner with the Luthers. Uh, uh, and so it's, it's just kind of crazy. Like you can just read all these comments that he, that he made. And so uh, one really good story about Katerina von, von Bora that I love is that once Luther was in a deep depression... And he was just laying in bed, and he really couldn't get out. He was beating himself up, and so she dressed herself in all black, and she came to the bedroom and said, "Oh, are we going to a funeral?" And she, and she, and he said, said no." And she's like, "Well, well, get up, get, get get ready, you know." And so she was able to to really minister to him and help him in the midst of his depressions. And so yeah, so she was um, she you know she would, would brew, brew beer. She was responsible for taking care of all of these animals that they had, and the farm, uh, lots of crops. She had a pond that she would get fish from. So, she was doing all all types of things. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, Any other questions? Uh, Oh, yes. Um, in regards to James, you said that he was um, basically against it because he, he didn't see the gospel expressed clearly. Did he have anything specific to say versus or regarding the faith versus works? Uh, did he, uh, I guess, more on the lines of the actual uh, specific content of it? Yeah, so, so Luther, he didn't um, like James because he thought that it, it held up works to the, um, contrary to what the rest of the Scripture teaches taught. And so, um, I, like I read, um, this one quote flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of the scripture, it describes righteousness to works. But Luther also, you know, said that there's many good things in James. And like I said, he preached on James several times. Uh, but one thing he said about James and one thing he admired about James is that it preached, quote, God's hard law. And so he liked that aspect about James, that it preached God's hard, hard law. Uh, but I'm not aware of anything in particular about. Um, the, those particular verses in, in James 2, other than the fact that Luther didn't like it because he thought it contradicted what Paul said. Oh, true, yeah. So, I'm a little bit confused. So, does he think, he thinks that James shouldn't have been in the canon? Oh, that's not true. That, 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 no, or he, does I, he think it should have been? Um, he. He. I, I think that Luther... Uh, felt that I think he said that every man should make up his own mind. He didn't like James that much, but he still included it in the his 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 Bible. He had it later on uh, in, in, in towards the back of the book. And so uh, Luther had questions about James, Hebrews, Jude, and Revelation. And so he put those towards the back of the Bible. But he said let every man make up his own mind on this issue. Uh, and like I said too, he also followed the common lectionary, so he still preached from James as Scripture, even though he didn't hold it to. Uh, as high as regard as certain other portions, uh, Logan, well done. Uh, thank you um, it's very thank you, good. What is the modern Catholic Church's view on Martin Luther today? Well I think it it, it, it varies. Um, I think for immediately after his death and in that time period, people had uh, very low views <laughs> of Luther. Uh, they didn't like him too much. Uh, but today I, you know there there are overtures. Among certain Luther, Lutherans in the Catholic Church to to reconcile, uh, and so I think there's certain um, they've signed like certain agreements, like you know trying to work, paper over some of these differences that they that they had, um, and so uh, I, you know I, I'm not in terms of like how he's viewed today by by like the Catholic Church as an institution, I'm not quite certain. However, I, I have read that he has had an influence on on certain Catholics in terms of showing them um, the importance of a biblical exegesis uh, and so that that's really all I have to say on that I guess uh, any other questions if not thank you so much for uh, being here tonight uh, it was really a, a pleasure to to be able to, to speak with you and I hope that um, uh, you are encouraged by this it helps and uh, let's just pray and, and and do you any more questions okay Let's just pray and thank God uh, for His goodness to us, uh, Father. We we thank you so much for this opportunity to meet here tonight, um, to to talk about the life of Martin Luther. Uh, we thank you that we are able to gather freely. Uh, thank you so much for this church, God. Thank you for pastors and elders who love you and who shepherd us well, uh, Father. We thank you that we hear your word here. We hear the gospel. We don't hear you know you know myths cleverly devised myths or the teachings of men, Father, but we hear your gospel and we thank you for that because it is the power of God for salvation. Uh, Father, I pray that you would make us as a church more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, too, that you would help us as a church to to minister to those who are suffering, ministering to those who who might feel. Separated or lonely or outcast because you feel distant, God, I pray that they would know that, that this is is not unique to them. And that your word addresses these issues. And uh, we ask this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.